The New York Times features two articles written by mothers. One talks about the beauty of abortion as a means to an end. The other talks about the harmony between being a mother and being an abortion doctor. We will examine the worldview assumptions behind mothers who praise abortion and mourn for the culture's view of mothers. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Let's examine this first New York Times opinion editorial. This one was released on June 30th, and the author's name is a woman by the name of Cindy Leave. And the name of her article is, Let's Talk About My Abortion and Yours. Now, Cindy Leave is the former editor-in-chief of the magazine Glamour and the magazine called Self. And the context of this article, what she's writing about is that, you know, women have been silent far too long on their abortions. And women are loud on everything else, but we're, we're still silent about our abortions. And we, 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 need, we need not be. We should be proud of our abortions. Hashtag shout your abortion. So she rambles on in this article about how our women's rights are under assault. And so we all need to shout our abortions. But there's one paragraph in this article that is incredibly telling incredibly revealing in regards to where the culture finds themselves on the issue of abortion, why they see it as a social good. So we're going to examine those worldview assumptions, but we're going to read this paragraph in her article. This is what she says. It's time for those of us who know and have lived the truth to raise our hands and say, no, this is the real story. Most of us have been here before and we are here for you. And we will not let your rights be rolled back. With that in mind, I recently told my own 15-year-old daughter about the choice I'd made. To my surprise, I cried as I described my life that year, the, the confusion, my mother's illness. And though she was just a kid, not much younger than I had been then, she wiped my tears. I told her that I felt immense gratitude for the life I have been able to build, for the two children I've been able to care and provide for, for the marriage I could choose freely, for the dreams I was able to pursue. And all of it, I told her, was made possible by my right to decide when I was ready to be a mother. Friends, that right there is the abortion worldview wrapped up in two sentences. She says, everything I've been able to accomplish, my career, the money I've made, my kid was made possible by my legal right to kill my child. I mean, this is the abortion worldview encapsulated in two sentences. Absolute personal autonomy, the idolatry of the self. The deification of the self as the highest good, of the ultimate concern. My concerns, my life, what matters for me are, are of the highest good. And so therefore, whatever I need to do or whatever choices I need to make in order to secure my version of the good life is perfectly ex acceptable because I'm my own God. I create my own truth. And so therefore, whatever decisions I make simply reflect my truth. 
And so what's right for me is right for me. And so if an abortion is empowering, if abortion enables me to avoid the responsibilities that come along with motherhood in order that I can go make a lot of money in the market, have kids later if I want, and then give those kids that I didn't kill a financially robust future because of the child I killed before, then hallelujah. That is the abortion worldview. And this statement is so incredibly telling as to where our culture finds itself today. Now, interestingly enough, Cindy Lee's entire career has revolved around the deification of self. I told you that she was the editor-in-chief of the magazine Glamour and the magazine that's literally called Self. <laughs> it's all about you. Go get it. Go do you. If it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, go after it. It's your version of the good life that matters. And, and if in your pursuit of your version of the good life, you happen to trample on others or maybe pay someone to rip your children's arm off in the womb, then that's perfectly fine because you're the one that matters. You're your own God. Go sit on your throne and enjoy it. Now, obviously, we find this incredibly sobering, incredibly sad because we know that the pursuit of self as the highest good always lets down, don't we? We know that it never brings the satisfaction that it promises to. And if history teaches us anything, it teaches us that. And of course, from a Christian worldview, we know that the pursuit of self at all costs is one of the most damaging things you can do. And it's actually self-sacrifice that brings the most satisfaction. And abortion is the complete opposite of self-sacrifice, isn't it? It's the sacrifice of children so that you can obtain your version of the good life. It's the elevation of self over the children you've created. Now, there is a powerful parallel here, actually, to child sacrifice. And so I want to I give you a little history on child sacrifice. This is going to be brutal. This is going to be disgusting and horrific. But I believe it's a parallel that needs to be made, and I'd be remiss if I didn't make it. Now, I alluded to some of that already when I talked about the sacrifice of children for our own good. So child sacrifice, friends, was practiced for thousands of years throughout the entire world and throughout all of throughout history of civilization, throughout multiple countries, and it was usually practiced in combination with pagan worship. And unfortunately, the practice of child sacrifice is rampant actually throughout the Old Testament too. And we see the Israelites, God's people, participating in child sacrifice as they were syncretizing with the Canaanites and beginning to worship the Canaanites' God rather than Yahweh, the one true God. So in the Old Testament, child sacrifice was practiced in worship of a pagan god, a Canaanite god, called Molech. And it was a god that Yahweh com explicitly commanded Israel not to worship, not to partake in the worshiping of the Canaanite gods. But unfortunately, of course, the Israelites walked away from the promises of God to provide, to provide security and care and blessing. And they began to worship pagan gods in hopes to get the things that God had already promised them that they had convinced themselves God was withholding from them. So when the Israelites stopped trusting God for provision and for blessing, they turned to the worship of Moloch. And the sacrifice of children to Moloch was done to assure a blessing of prosperity for the family. 
which again, from a Christian worldview is so ironic, isn't it? Because we know that in fact, children are a blessing in and of themselves. But the Israelites were sacrificing their children to this pagan God to get a blessing in return. They thought their lives were going to improve and get better by killing their children. Now, you can probably see the parallels already with the issue of abortion. So how did this sacrifice work exactly? The idols of Molech were made out of bronze or copper, and then their outstretched arms were heated red hot. Then living babies, living infants, were placed into Molech's hands and were burned to death or were rolled into a pit of fire below the red-hot hands of this pagan god. Canaanite priests who officiated the worship of Moloch would then bang their drums so loudly in order that the mothers and fathers of the children who were being sacrificed would not hear the screams of their dying children. This is what child sacrifice is and has always been. And there's a Jewish commentator by the name of Rashi. From, he lived from AD 1040 to 1105. He describes this sacrifice in detail in his commentary on Jeremiah 31.7, where we find Israel, Israel worshiping Moloch. This is what he says. That is Moloch, which was of copper. And they would heat it up from underneath with its hands spread out and heated. And they would place the child on his hands. And he would be burnt and moan, and the priests would beat drums so that the father should not hear his son's voice and take pity. So even the Canaanite priests understood the gravity of this evil, and in order to hide it and cover it up, they would create sound so that the parents weren't realizing the horror of what they were doing. This is child sacrifice, and the same worldview Behind child sacrifice is the worldview we find behind abortion. If I, if I sacrifice my child, if I kill my child, I'm only doing it in order to improve my life, in order to get a blessing in return. Now, many will object to this comparison. And maybe you don't necessarily like the comparison I'm making to child sacrifice. Because maybe you say, well, women who get abortions aren't worshiping pagan deities. My goodness. In fact, lots of women who get abortions are Christians. So they're not worshiping pagan deities, and they're certainly not getting an abortion in order to get blessings. Don't you know that that's a hard decision to make? They're not doing that to get a blessing. But this completely misunderstands the nature of idolatry, right? The nature of pagan worship, the nature of worshiping a God that isn't the one and only true God. And it also misunderstands the reasons for why women get abortions in the first place. Because what is a pagan God but a false God? one that is not the true God. A pagan God is, is anything that we worship or treat as ultimate. So the pagan God could be Molech. It could be Baal. It could be any other religion's small g God. Or your, your pagan deity, your worship could be to the idol and gods of convenience, of social convention, of career well-being, of selfishness, of money, of education, of whatever that you treat as the ultimate highest good and by which you base all of your decisions on in your pursuit of this highest ultimate good. 
That's idolatry. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be called Moloch. It doesn't need to be a copper god that you keep on your nightstand and bow to and chant to every evening. Functionally, it doesn't matter. A pagan god is whatever we treat as ultimate. So sure, women aren't bowing down to Molech as they pay an abortionist to slit their child's throat, but they are functionally bowing down to the god of selfishness, the god of convenience. And this is true of men as well. Of course, I'm not trying to ostracize women. Men who pressure their women, their girlfriends or wives to get abortions or pay for them are also engaging in a form of idolatry, bowing down and worshiping the god of self, the god of career, the god of education. This child is in the way of my pursuit of the ultimate God, the ultimate good. So abortion is child sacrifice because from a Christian worldview, Satan doesn't care the name of the God that you sacrificed your children to. It says that Satan is a murderer. He's a liar. He, he roams around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. Satan loves killing babies. Satan loves abortion. So do you think Satan cares whether you call your pagan worship, worship to Molech or just worship to self. In fact, one could argue that worship to self is increasingly more dangerous because it's significantly more about you rather than a fictional fantasy pagan god. You have now become your own god. So abortion is child sacrifice. It's just sacrifice to the gods you've created. Now, someone might say, well, well, women aren't getting an abortion for blessing. I mean, that's such a disgusting statement in comparison to make. But again, what is the blessing they're getting in return? The ability to pursue their version of the good life. They don't have to worry about raising a child and providing all of the care and money and diapers and schooling that goes into having a child. That's gone now. So they can pay for college. They can work crazy hours to make a lot of money. Their child is not preventing them from doing anything anymore. Ironically, they prevented their child from living in the meantime. So this is why this type of view of human value and the view of the human person is so dangerous. Because it creates a world in which you as your own God can perform any type of behavior you want to achieve your happiness because it's all about you. And if you are your own God, then you can make objective decisions about your own life. And if those decisions happen to come at the cost of a dead baby, so be it, because we are our own God. So this, ironically, this Cindy Leave, who claims to be a feminist and is the editor-in-chief of multiple magazines focused on elevating women, has chosen to sacrifice her own child in order to procure a better version of the good life for her future. And so yeah, and so our culture has jumped on this bandwagon of child sacrifice to our own gods in order to secure our happiness. In one minute, we're going to examine another New York Times article written by an abortion doctor who claims that there is a beautiful balance and harmony between mothering her children and killing the children of other mothers. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted and become a patron of this show. Sign up for a monthly commitment that enables us to 
to increase its production value, bring on guests, do this on a weekly basis, and continue translating our country's pro-abortion rhetoric into reality. And this is a very important time for the pro-life movement, by the way. As you're aware, there have been more pro-life laws, more pro-life movement, and more awareness about the horror of abortion in the last year than sometimes in like a decade. There is a rising tide of pro-life individuals doing something about their convictions. But all convictions begin with understanding the nature of the thing that you're opposing, understanding the reality of abortion. The pro-life movement's problem is not that our ideas and beliefs are heard and rejected by the American public. The pro-life movement's problem has often been that our beliefs and ideas are not heard at all by the American public. Neither the mainstream media or Hollywood are going out of their way to provide a platform for pro-life leaders to share their beliefs and ideas. So this podcast is just one of many important ways to expand the pro-life message, beliefs, and ideas to the American public. So if that's important to you and you've enjoyed this show, head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted, become a patron, and go ahead and leave us a review so we can get this content in the hands of more people. We'll be back in one minute. So while Mother Cindy Leaf believes abortion is beautiful because the sacrifice of her child enabled her to have a successful career, make lots of money, and therefore more thoroughly enjoy the family and kids she has now, abortion doctor Christine Henneberg writes in the New York Times that there is actual harmony between her job as a mother and her job as an abortionist in killing other mothers' children. So the New York Times opinion editorial ran a piece on June 27th written by Christine Henneberg entitled, When an Abortion Doctor Becomes a Mother. Now, Christine Henneberg is an author and abortion doctor operating in Northern California. And in her article, she discusses her experience actually struggling to get pregnant while ironically being the eliminator of pregnancies. And then details what it was like getting pregnant and still going to work to kill other mother's children. And how she discovered the harmony she now lives in as a mother and an abortion doctor. So just like before, there's a few segments here that are so revealing as to where our culture is and is important for us to understand in order that we can respond appropriately and understand the worldview assumptions of those on the other side of the aisle, on those who describe themselves as pro-choice or pro-abortion. So in the beginning of her article, she talks about an experience when she was pregnant and working at her abortion clinic. And this is what she says. There was one time when I almost fell apart. I was in my second trimester performing a 17-week procedure on a patient. The fetus, which is normally extracted in parts, came through the cervix intact. I dropped it in the metal dish and I saw it move or I thought I did. 
It was all I could do not to run from the procedure room crying. That was the only time. The only time what? The only time that she almost fell apart, she says. Now, I just want, I want you to examine just for a second the horror of what was just said. Christine Henneberg is in her second trimester performing an abortion on a baby in their second trimester. She says that she's in her second trimester. We don't know exactly when, but that would have to be after 12 weeks performing a 17-week procedure on a patient. So this mother's child is already well into his or her second trimester. And Christine Hedeberg is standing there pregnant with a baby likely at the same level of development, located six inches away in her womb as she pulls this child out of this mother's womb and oops, it came out intact and fell on the metal dish in front of her writhing. But Christine Henneberg says that was the only time that she almost fell apart. So she didn't really fall apart. But she kind of felt like it. This, this reveals how difficult it is for those who support abortion to reconcile their beliefs with reality. She's... Re- she's acknowledging here that she almost fell apart, that there was some type of moral weight to what was happening because it wasn't just a blob of tissue. What she was doing had moral significance or immoral significance. But that was really the only time she almost fell apart. Otherwise, she lives in harmony now. How how do you compartmentalize this type of horror And the reality is, friends, really the sobering reality for all of us is that we as human beings can compartmentalize and justify all sorts of things, all sorts of of opposite opposing ideas. If the ideas that we hold are ones that we can convince ourselves are true, if we can convince ourselves about certain ideas about the human condition, about human value, and we treat those ideas as objective reality, then we can compartmentalize all types of things and justify all types of atrocious behaviors that we otherwise would never do. So what ideas does Christine Henneberg have? What ideas does she have that enable her to compartmentalize like this? To, to, to kill and dismember a baby at the same level of development as her child in the womb. Maybe... 20 inches away from the child she's killing. Well, she tells us what ideas she has. She goes on and says, At first, I was nervous about what my patients would think and say when I started showing. But they always expressed genuine happiness for me, even in the midst of their own difficulties. Girl, you are going to love that baby. One mother of three said to me as I prepped her for her procedure. A 19-year-old woman ending her first pregnancy smiled at me through her tears. It's your time, she said. It's your time, girl. You're going to love that baby. Notice the ideas that were just revealed in, in these statements from Christine Henneberg. 
one child, hers, is wanted and therefore has some type of value, some type of moral significance. But if, if you're being prepped for a procedure, if your cervix is being forcibly dilated so that forceps can fit up your birth canal and rip your child's head off, well then, see, that baby's unwanted. So it doesn't have any value, doesn't have any moral significance. And yet you can see the tension in these conversations that she recounts from her time working as a pregnant abortionist. The women whose children she's about to kill are saying, girl, you're going to love that baby. Oh, it's your time. It's your time, Christine. But it's not my time. It's not, it's not my time. I'm not ready for this. And so therefore, the baby in my womb has no value. And so an abortion is, is just an acceptable solution to the difficulties in my life. So you see, our culture views human value in terms of wantedness and convenience. That's ultimately what this statement reveals. These babies that Christine was killing were not convenient for these mothers, and they certainly weren't wanted, obviously. And so therefore, these women can laugh and smile at each other about the beauty of the life inside Christine Henneberg's womb, but the, the moral trash heap of the babies in the other mother's wombs who are unwanted. This is the cultural view of human value right now. And this is extremely dangerous. The problem here, friends, is that wantedness and convenience are subjective standards, right? They're not true for everyone. Christine wanted her baby. The women whose children she was killing didn't want their babies. So the standards of value being wantedness and convenience are entirely personal, preferential, and subjective. And the problem is, is that when subjective standards dictate morality, we are left with a Darwinian world where the strong kill the weak and might makes right. That is where we're left. Those are, those are the consequences that these ideas have. And bad ideas have victims. All ideas have consequences, but bad ideas have victims. The bad idea here is that your value and your right to not be killed are entirely dependent on how those stronger than you view you. So if you're inconvenient to me, if you piss me off, if you wrong me, or I simply don't like your existence, I can define you out of existence by saying that you're not a person simply because my view of you is that you're unwanted and inconvenient. So these standards are completely subjective. But because they're completely subjective, anyone can determine what human value means to them. And so we're left in a world where it's the powerful who reign, right? Because if we can all create our own standards of human value, then it's going to be the powerful who are in control. Because the weak, the voiceless, the defenseless, they can't, they can't object. They can't say, whoa, I don't like your view of human value. No, I'm valuable even if you don't want me. The voiceless can't do that. 
So su when subjective standards dictate morality, might makes right. The survival of the fittest reigns. That is what is happening in abortion. And that is how someone like Christine is able to compartmentalize her life and justify abortion because her plausibility structure, if you will, her view of the world and human persons is based on her own subjective view of morality. So we can joke and laugh while in an abortion clinic because I want my baby and you don't want yours and that's perfectly fine. So interestingly enough, Christine Henneberg actually goes on to ask the question that we're all kind of asking right now. So she continues by saying this, how do I continue to do this work? Thank you, Christine. We'd all really like to know that. She says, the answer is that there is a connection between my work as an abortion doctor and my work as a mother. It's just not what most people imagine. It's not a tension or a contradiction to be reconciled. It's a symbiosis. It's a harmony. She says, I do not mean it's an easy job. Of course it's not. There is the protester on the sidewalk. There is the fetus in the dish. The perfect curl of its fingers and toes. Sometimes it reminds me of my daughter. How could it not? But that is precisely the point. As a doctor, I can draw a distinction, a boundary, between a fetus and a baby. When I became a mother, I learned that there are no boundaries, really. The moment you become a mother, the moment another heartbeat flickers inside you, all boundaries fall away. Wow. Yes, Christine, you're right. It seems like she's about to become pro-life, doesn't it? She continues. Nevertheless, as mothers, we must all make choices. And we must live with the choices that are not ours to make. We can try to compartmentalize. We can try to keep things tidy and acceptable. But in reality, everything is messy. The work of doctors, that's abortionists, by the way, the work of mothers, and the love of each one of us for our children. And yet somebody has to do the work. That is how Christine Henneberg finishes her New York Times opinion editorial on how she has achieved a level of harmony between her work as a mother and her work as an abortionist. And you can sense her struggle here, can't you? I, I read this. I thought, I thought this was a testimonial piece. I thought this was a conversion piece. She draws up all of the thinking that is necessary to make the jump from pro-choice to pro-life. She says that when she kills children and sees their curled fingers and toes, she says, how could I not think of my daughter? And she says that we can try to draw distinctions and the boundaries, but we really can't. Because when you become a mother, when a heartbeat flickers inside you, all boundaries fall away. What? What boundaries? The boundaries that keep you from killing other people's children. You can sense the moral struggle she's having, which should tell you that the abortion debate is a debate of ultimate significance. It's not a debate across bipartisan lines that we can simply 
lay our hands down, lay our weapons down, and agree to disagree. It has moral weight and moral significance, and you can sense Christine Henneberg acknowledging that tension right here. But her plausibility structure, her worldview, her standards for human value are subjective. That is the lens through which she sees the world. And so she can't avoid but look through that lens. She can sense the struggle. She can sense the tension, the irreconcilable nature of her work as a mother and her work as an abortion doctor, and yet still make the claim that we must live with the choices of others that aren't ours to make. And what she means is the choice of other mothers to kill their children. And if I can profit from killing those children, then that's perfectly fine because that mother's view of her child is that it's unwanted and not valuable. So I can sit here pregnant with a child at the same level of development while I dismember your child because I have to respect your choices. But some choices are wrong, aren't they? We all know that. We all know, for example, that child abuse is wrong. When parents choose to hurt and bruise and beat their own children, people across party lines, whether they're pro-choice or pro-life, say that is morally wrong. But abortion is the worst form of child abuse because it doesn't just bruise a baby. It doesn't just hurt a baby. It ends in the death of a baby. And we all know that abortion kills something. And the science, the facts, are very clear that that thing is a human being whose life began at the moment of conception. So this is an ideological battle. This is a worldview battle. But our worldview and our ideas are better. Our ideas respect the inclusivity of all human beings as equally valuable, as included in the human family. And your inclusion in that family and the respect for your right to life begins from the moment of conception. It is the pro-life movement that is the movement of inclusion. It's those who say that we should be able to kill babies that are excluding and discriminating against certain members of the human family because they're defining their value based on subjective standards like wantedness and convenience. And yet, Christine Henneberg creates a moral equivalency here at the end of the article between the choice of motherhood, the choice of abortion, or the choice of a career as an abortionist, right? She says, well, life is messy. Everything is messy. The work of abortion doctors, the work of mothers, and the love of each one of us for our children. Question, Christine, does the love for, of each one of us for our children include unborn children? No, of course it doesn't, right? Because the pro-choice movement has, has singled out an entire class of human beings for slaughter based off of their view of personhood. And that's why these ideas have consequences, not just because it leads to the slaughter of a million unborn babies every year in the United States of America, but also because if might makes right, then I can abuse, dismember, and kill you. If I simply apply my own subjective view of human value to disclude you from the human family. And these are the ideas that have driven and justified nearly every human injustice in human history. Rape treats women as less than. Racism 
racial violence treats others as less than because it defines them as not valuable based on your own standards. The Holocaust treated an entire class of Jews as non-persons based off of Nazi Aryans' view of human personhood. It's the same recycled bad ideas over and over again. And the consequences are the same. Dead human beings who are created in the image of God and share our common human nature and value. So is the choice of motherhood, the choice of abortion, and the choice of an abortionist morally equivalent? Well, we all know this is not true, don't we? And at a deeper level, Christine Hedeberg knows this is not true. Because when she sees the baby she kills, she thinks of her daughter and says, how can I not think of my daughter? She knows that there are boundaries and that she can't help but create those boundaries between loving and hugging her daughter and reading bedtime stories and killing other mother's children before they're born. But we all know that these choices are not morally equivalent. Because nearly 100% of people who say who have children, say that they do not regret having those children. Even when those children are inconceived, are con I'm sorry, are conceived at inconvenient times. In fact, there's been a lot of research showing that women who choose to keep their babies conceived in rape, well over 90%, well over, also nearly 100, say that they do not regret keeping their child. And that's a child that came into being in the most inconvenient horrific circumstances. Practically 100% of people who don't kill their children in abortion and keep their children say that they don't regret having those children. Why? Because children are a blessing. And Christine Hennebury acknowledges this when she says that she thinks of her daughter when she kills other babies. So we know that these choices are not morally equivalent because we know some choices are wrong, don't we? We all know that. We all sense that. And even those who support abortion have a sense of that. Massive percentages of people who get abortions, however, report saying that their, their abortion has caused them to have regret. So not everyone will. Many people will have an abortion and say that they don't regret it. But large percentages of people say that they do, while everyone who kept their babies said that they didn't regret keeping their children. That should tell us something about the moral weight of the issue of abortion. So we should really mourn the view of personhood that our culture has and the view of motherhood, the view of parenting that our culture has. You, you cannot properly honor and celebrate motherhood if you also believe that mothers should be able to kill their own children or that fathers should be able to pay to kill their own children. If children are truly a blessing, then they are a blessing to those that have them. And those of us who are families, regardless of whether we're pro-life or pro-choice, we know that. We believe and sense and have experienced the fact that children are a blessing. And what I want to say, what I want to encourage us all to realize is that those children are a blessing whether they're unborn or born, regardless of their size, their level of development, their location, or their dependency on you for their life. You need to give them the dependency that they need so that they can live and thrive and you can experience the blessing of being a mother or a father. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining me. Head on over to iTunes and YouTube. Give this show a review and a rating. That always helps so we can reach more people. Please share this. 
If you want to learn more or engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com. And you can go on there for training videos, for my speaking schedule, or to subscribe to my newsletter and get training and content and pro-life thinking brought straightly to your inbox. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. We'll be right back.